Church, we live in the day and age of what is known as cancel culture. I almost don't even want to use the term lest you think that I'm going to get political this morning. It's not my intention, but I'm sure that when you hear that term, cancel culture, you can think immediately of some examples that, that you've read in the news of, of this uh, phenomenon. Cancel culture is the term that we've given to, to the reality in our society uh, of canceling someone if they somehow fall short of society's standards of righteousness. So, so, so culture and society, especially popular culture, has, has built up these standards of, of righteousness. Uh, Sometimes they align more closely with biblical standards. Sometimes they're completely the opposite of biblical standards. But, but they have a standard of righteousness. And if someone is discovered to have said something or done something that falls short of what the culture says is righteous, then essentially that person is excommunicated from society. No longer welcome. And, and, and untouchable now. You can't even associate with someone like this. That, that person is forever an outsider with no way of getting back in. There's no path back for someone who's been canceled. They, it's canceled. You're done. That's, that's happening in our society. You guys know examples of that happening. Cancel culture creates outsiders, those who, are, those who are no longer welcome, which of course means there are people who are on the inside, right? And, and so who's an insider? How do you stay on the inside? How do you avoid being canceled? Only by living up to the society's standard, right? Only by, only by being uh, who the culture says you need to be. And as long as you meet those standards of righteousness that the society sets, then you're in. You're good. You're part of the club. But if even the insiders are discovered to have fallen short at some point, they will be canceled too. This is cancel culture at work. Now, if we take it as a given that this phenomenon called cancel culture is driven by those who would consider themselves progressive, maybe those who are on the left, then we also need to recognize that the conservative response is really no better. The conservative response to all this the, the, on the right is simply to say, so what? They messed up. It shouldn't be such a big deal. But at least in the areas where society's standards of righteousness begin to align with biblical morality, Take an example of maybe racist or misogynistic language or actions, which we would say and agree those things are wrong. At least in those cases, should we really just say it's no big deal? Should we really just, just, just brush it under the rug, turn a blind eye to people's wrongdoings? See, the response is no better, really. And here's why I'm beginning here this morning. It's, again, it's not for political reasons. The church is not called to be a political institution in our culture. The church is called to be a prophetic institution that speaks into the culture. The church is called not to take sides in culture wars so much as to be a counterculture in the world. And so, Redeemer, if we're going to be a counterculture in times like this, when, when this is how our culture is operating, if we're going to really be a counterculture, then here's what needs to happen. We need to be more like Jesus. We need to be more like Jesus. We're going to see this morning that there was a different type of cancel culture at work in Israel 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus entered into that culture, he turned it on its head. He turned it upside down. To put it in modern terms, listen, Jesus exposed everyone but canceled no one. 
Jesus exposed everyone but canceled no one. Jesus exposed everyone. He showed everyone that they belong on the outside and he invited everyone in. He invited everyone to himself. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're in a series through Matthew following the fulfillment. This book, this gospel is written to tell us who Jesus is as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and and to help us know what does it mean to become one of his followers. What does that look like? And we're in a section right now, this week and next week, where people are beginning to grapple with Jesus. And, and they've seen his miracles, they've heard his teaching, and, and they're seeing him, his, his popularity is growing. And, you know, Jesus was different. Jesus was different than everyone else. And people are beginning to wrestle with these differences and, 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 and ask questions. How, why do you do this? Why don't you do this? And, and they're wrestling with this. And that's what we see in this passage this morning is, is this first instance of seeing Jesus is different than our teachers. Jesus is different than we are. Why? Why is that? And this morning, the, the, the difference is this, that Jesus, unlike the other religious teachers and leaders in his day, ate with tax collectors and sinners. And this was totally different than anything they had seen before. Let's read the passage, Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this story unfolds in three scenes. Uh, First, scene one happens at a tax booth. Jesus calls a tax collector. Look at verse nine again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now this is one of those verses that seems so simple and ordinary and straightforward that we read right through it without giving it a thought, and we keep going. But that is not the way the original audience of Matthew would have read this verse. What happens in verse nine would have confounded them. What happens in verse 9 is radical. We need to remember who Jesus is first. Who is this Jesus who comes to Matthew? And at this point in the gospel, here's what we've seen. Jesus is an expert teacher of God's law. Jesus uh, is unlike any other teacher. He knows God's law. He interprets it with a note of divine authority. This, this is someone who, who knows what God has said and is able to teach it with authority. But he's not only a teacher and a rabbi, he's also a miracle worker. He, he healed sickness. He cast out demons. He rebuked nature. He caused lame people to walk. And, and, and people are beginning to suspect at this point that this, this could be the Messiah. This Jesus, he, he, is, he is a larger-than-life figure now in the land of Israel. He is, he is a holy rabbi who works miracles with his words. That's who Jesus is. Now remember now who Matthew is. He, he's a tax collector. Unless none of us really are big fans of the IRS, right? But there was a little bit more to being a tax collector than just collecting taxes in Jesus' day. 
tax collectors were essentially sellouts. They were sellouts. Rome ruled over the land of Israel and the land of Judah, and that was not a willing rulership, right? And, and the Israelites did not want, them, they wanted their own kingdom as God had given them, but tax collectors were sellouts, they were traitors, they, uh, they became friends with Rome for their own benefit and, and then were used by Rome to levy these severe taxes against their own people. And so tax collectors were, were seen as traitors and sellouts and, and just greedy swindlers that didn't care at all for people. This is really who they were. At the same time, even beyond that indictment, tax collectors were seen as unclean because of their frequent interactions with Gentiles. They, they, they didn't care about being clean. They, they frequently interacted with, with Rome, with Gentiles, and, and therefore they were not part of the, the regular religious life of God's people Israel at this point. And, and, and here's the point of getting those two portraits. Who is Jesus? Who is Matthew? Because if we understand who Jesus is and who Matthew is, Matthew's the last kind of person that we would expect someone like Jesus to choose as a disciple. A traitor, unclean, not devout, not devoted to God. Jesus is the Messiah of God's people Israel, and, and he's a traitor to God's people. And yet Jesus goes to him. He goes to the tax booth as Matthew is sitting there, and he says, follow me. Leave the tax booth behind and become my disciple And it's even more astonishing when we realize that just in the last chapter, Jesus told several people no. That they couldn't follow him unless they were willing to, unless they were willing to make these certain sacrifices. And he said to a scribe that that he wasn't cut out for it unless he was willing to, to sacrifice more. And yet here he goes to this tax collector and he takes the initiative and says, You follow me. And Matthew rose and became one of his disciples. He left the tax booth behind. That's scene one. We see the calling of Matthew, who again wrote this gospel. Scene two, Matthew throws a party. Matthew throws a party. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. We know from the other gospels that that this was Matthew's house, and Luke tells us he threw a great feast. Have you ever wondered how a disciple felt when Jesus came and said, follow me, and they rose and responded to the call and, start, and started to follow after Jesus? Walked down, what, what emotions were they feeling? And sometimes we might think, like, it's death row, right? You know, it's just trudging along like this, scared. No, no, Matthew was excited. Matthew was rejoicing. Matthew was celebrating. This was a momentous occasion in Matthew's life. He was an outsider. He was a traitor. He had no way back in. And Jesus comes to him and says, leave it behind and follow me. Matthew is excited. And he says, I'm going to throw a feast. I'm going to throw a party. We're going to celebrate. I want want people to celebrate with me. And, And who does he invite to this feast? Look, Jesus and his disciples and other tax collectors, and sinners. We don't know exactly who these sinners were, but they were the kinds of people that were not accepted into the the religious and mainstream life of Israel. He invites them all, Jesus and his disciples, his tax collector friends, other sinners. They're all coming for this feast to celebrate. Now listen, we all know there are certain crowds that just don't mix well. 
right? Like certain, certain groups of people you don't, you don't really put together on purpose. And, and you especially know this if you've ever had to arrange seating for a wedding reception. Uh, so you've got limited tables and who's going to sit with who and you're sitting with your fiance trying to figure out where is everyone going to sit and, and you say, well, we can put these people together. No, you cannot put your uncle with my cousins. That's not going to go well, right? Like we, we know that some people just don't mix and when we see this here, we kind of wonder, like, is Matthew oblivious to that? Does, does, he, does he just not have good social cues and isn't realizing how awkward this is going to be? No, it's the exact, exact opposite, actually. You see, Matthew knows how Jesus makes tax collectors feel. Matthew experienced from Jesus the kindness and love that came to him and said, follow me. And Matthew wants his friends, other sinners, other outsiders, to experience this too. He's staging this whole thing, Right? He's, he's celebrating, but he's saying, I want, I want you to know about this guy, Jesus, who, who came to me and changed my life. Jesus didn't treat tax collectors like tax collectors were used to being treated. He didn't condemn them. He didn't shun them. He moved toward them. He befriended them. He loved them. Matthew wants them to know that too. And look, we see how the party went in verse 10, right? We, this, is, this is during the party and we see not, you know, the tax collectors and sinners over here in a circle doing their thing and then in the next room over, Jesus and his disciples. Uh, so the, it's not like they're at the same party but not associated. No, look, they are together. Tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Literally, Jesus is mixing it up with these tax collectors and sinners. They are together. They are eating together. They are, they are talking. Jesus is enjoying their company. This is, this is the kind of person Jesus is. He, he moves toward outsiders. He moves toward sinners. And he enjoys their fellowship. He enjoys their company. He loves them. Well, this leads to the next scene, the third scene, the Pharisees question Jesus. This scene takes place outside the house. And we know it's outside the house because the Pharisees would never have gone into this house at this time. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So this, maybe this is the same day, maybe it's the next day, but the Pharisees saw what was going on at Matthew's house. They saw Jesus and his disciples enter into the house of this tax collector, and they saw a bunch of other tax collectors and sinful people enter into the house at the same time. And to them, this was scandalous. To, to, to them, this, this was unthinkable that someone like Jesus, who claimed to be a teacher of the law, who claimed to be from God, who claimed to be holy, that he would go into a house with tax collectors and sinners and make himself unclean, to, to them, that, that, that was the problem, is, is to associate with them made you unclean, according to their understanding of the law. And so they raised the question to Jesus' disciples. I, I don't know why they don't ask Jesus. Maybe, maybe they're afraid of him. Maybe, maybe they don't have the courage to ask himself. But they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with those people? And really, it's an accusation. He should not be eating with those people. Doesn't he care? That he's making himself unclean? Doesn't he care about God's law? Of course, 
The Pharisees, they, they seem notoriously bad at hiding anything from Jesus. And you know, he hears the question and he responds for himself. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time is looking at these, th- these three answers that Jesus gives to that question. The question is, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gives three answers in response. So we're just going to take our time on these this morning. First answer he gives, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I want you to imagine with me a young person who uh, decides that he wants to be a doctor someday because he wants to help people. He wants to heal people. He wants to make, help make people better. And so he studies hard. He works hard to get into a good program. He, he studies through that. He, he takes his exams. He passes. He gets credentials. He finally arrives at the place where he can actually begin to practice. And he says, I'm going to go to this, the most disease-stricken country in the world that has no access to, to modern medicine. And I'm going to go set up practice there because I want to help people who really, really need help. And he goes and he sets up an office and, and no one comes. He waits and he waits and he waits and no one comes to him for healing. No one comes to him for help. And so what does he do? He says, well, I'm going to go to them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pack up this office into a duffel bag, and I'm just going to start walking through the community. And who is he looking for? He's looking for someone, anyone who's sick. He's looking for a sick person because he wants to help. He wants to make them better. He wants to make them well. And he finally finds somebody, and, and he, he, he says, I have something for you that can, that can make you better. And he explains what he's going to do, and the person says, okay, I, I, I want that. Let, let's try it. And he heals him. This, 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 this man is better, and from there, word spreads fast. Because this man goes to his friend who's sick and says, there's, there's someone here who can help us. And, and it just spreads like wildfire. And all of a sudden, there's, there's sick people coming to this man looking for healing. Jesus is saying, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here, Pharisees. I, I, I came to Matthew, and, and I... And I called him, and I ministered to him, and he, he needed me, and, I, and I've helped him, and then he told his friends, and now they're coming too. That, that this is who Jesus is. This is what his ministry is all about. And notice that he's challenging the Pharisees' perspective in a few ways here. First, he's, he's challenging their perspective of sinners. So, Scripture, we know, talks about sin in very frank terms. Sin is evil. Sin is wickedness. Sin is rebellion. Sin is idolatry. Sin deserves punishment. Scripture doesn't doesn't pull any punches when it talks about sin. And the Pharisees viewed sin that way, but they're missing something else. And Joey, you prayed it this way earlier. Scripture also tells us that sin is a disease in our hearts. Sin is a sickness within us. We are disposed to sin because we are born with this fallen nature that we've inherited from Adam. We, we are sick with sin. There's something deeply wrong with sinners on the inside, and they need help. And see, the Pharisees had a condemning attitude towards sinners. They were only viewing sin through the lens of the actions and how evil and reprehensible they were, and they weren't seeing that sin is not just a rebellious action, but it's, it's a condition of the heart. And see, Jesus is challenging their attitude to, to, 
say, look, have compassion. They're sick. These people are, they're not just rebels, they're sick rebels. They need help. While they had a condemning attitude towards sinners, Jesus had a compassionate attitude that viewed sinners as sick people who needed help. And second, he's challenging their perspective of who he is too, right? Because who's the physician in the metaphor? It's Jesus. Jesus is the physician. Jesus is saying, I'm not sick. I'm, I'm not included in, in that crowd. I'm the one who comes to help. I'm the one who comes to, to cure. I'm the one who comes with, with a unique ability to heal sin-sick hearts. That's who I am. He's set apart. He's unique. He's sinless. And he can do this. I want to address those of you this morning who know that you're a sinner. Those of you this morning who know your sin, you know you've disobeyed God's law. You know you are guilty before him. You know you have fallen short of his glory and his righteousness. You understand, sitting where you are today, that you have sinned and you are a sinner. To you who know your sin, do not believe the lie that you must make yourself better to come to Jesus. Do not believe the lie that you must clean up your life first. Do not believe the lie that you must get yourself right by being a better person or doing more religious things. That's a lie, first off, because you can't. You can't. Your sins are not just mistakes you've made that you need to learn from and do better next time. No, you sinned because you are sick with sin on the inside. You have a sin-sick heart. You have a condition that you cannot cure yourself from. You cannot make yourself right no matter how hard you try. You cannot make yourself right. We're going to sing this later this morning, but there's a line in an old hymn that says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Because, because you'll never be better. You can't make yourself better. You can't work your way out of your sin because you have an inward disease, a disposition to sin that you cannot cure yourself from. You have a sin-sick heart. So don't believe the lie that you have to get yourself better because you can't. And secondly, don't believe that lie because you don't have to. Jesus is not asking you to do that. Jesus is not coming to you and saying, clean yourself up, make yourself right, then come to me so I can enjoy your holiness. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you're sick and I can heal you. He's saying, you, you need me and I have come to you to help you. I have the cure. I am the cure. I desire to heal you. That's why I'm here. That's why I've come to cure your sin-sick heart. So if you know your sin this morning, then know also that Jesus is the only one who can heal you from your sin and he invites you to come and he invites you today to be made well. He invites you to bring your sin-sick heart to him and to cry out to him this morning to heal you and save you from your sins. He is the physician for sin-sick people. He is our healer. And this morning, right now, cry out to him this morning to heal you. You cannot make yourself better. and He is not asking you to. He has come to heal you. Come to him. Cry out to him. This truth alone is just so rich. We could just stop there. We could rejoice and we could sing about this. But Jesus has more to say in this passage. He, he, he came for the sick. But there's a problem is that the Pharisees don't realize they're sick too. They don't realize they're sick too. And Jesus is not willing 
to leave them in their ignorance about this. Just revisit that illustration with me of this, this, this doctor who goes to, to find someone to help and heal. And imagine that he's in that same community, walking the streets, he finds someone who's sick, but, but now it's different because this person does not believe they're sick. This person does not believe they have a problem. This person does not believe that they need any help. And now this doctor's task is, is not just to heal, but to convince them they need healing. And that's what Jesus does next with the Pharisees. Jesus desires to show them you're sick too. You need healing too. Look at what he says next in verse 13. This is his second answer. Why do you tax collectors and sinners? So, so first, because, because I'm a physician and they're sick. Second, he says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So here's, here's Jesus' second response to the question. Why do you, sinners, and, and here's what Jesus says, you guys need to go have a little Bible study. <laughs> you, you, you guys need to, to, to go and open up your scrolls to Hosea chapter 6 and learn what it means. Open it up, look at the context, think about who Hosea was, think about Israel, think about what God is saying in Hosea chapter 6, and think about this phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and then come back and we'll talk more about it. He's calling them to have a little Bible study, right? And, and that's what we want to do this morning. We're going to turn back to Hosea chapter 6. Let's turn there together and see what this means. Hosea chapter 6, let's learn together what does it mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea is right after the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Like most prophetic books, Hosea is issuing a call to Israel to repent of its wickedness. And when chapter 6 begins, it seems like Israel's doing just that. Look at how chapter 6 begins. Hosea chapter 6 starts this way. You'll see it's in quotes. This is the Israelites talking to one another. In response to Hosea, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He's going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So in, in these three verses, that sounds pretty good, right? saying, let us return to the Lord. Let us repent. Let us press on to know him. Let us come back to him. But look at verse 4 and 5. Look at how the Lord responds to this call that they're giving to each other. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. See, the Lord sees right through their words. He says they're fleeting. Your love is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes early away. He says it's fleeting. These, these are empty words. You remain under judgment. Why would the Lord say that this repentance is empty? Well, look at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Seems like this is what's going on. They're saying, let's return to the Lord. Let's come back to him. Let's, he, he, he'll, he'll heal us. And then what do they do? They go to the temple and they offer sacrifices. And they go through the motions 
of ceremonial worship. And that's it. That, that's, that's their return. That's their repentance. And, and God is looking at that and saying, I see right through your words, all I see is ceremony. All I see is sacrifice. There's no change happening. There's no mercy coming from you. There's no steadfast love coming from you. There's no true knowledge of God here. It's just ceremony. If you had truly repented, you, you, then you would have experienced my mercy and that would have changed you so that you then become merciful to others. But all I see is sacrifice. All I see are burnt offerings. And, and just like David said when he repented in Psalm 51, God doesn't delight in burnt offering. He delights in a broken and contrite heart. That's not here. It's not here. And this is what Jesus points the Pharisees to. He says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What is Jesus wanting the Pharisees to see from this passage? Why is he saying this to them as they accuse him of, of eating with tax collectors and sinners and being unclean? Well, I think first Jesus is seeking to persuade them that they are sinners too. He wants them to see themselves in this. Say, you are no different than Israel was in Hosea's day. Your words are right. On the outside, you look great, but all you have is ceremony. All you have is ritual. All you have is the external religion. You keep yourself clean. You observe the Sabbath. You worship in the right places at the right times in the right ways. But you know what? There's no mercy in you. There's no mercy in you. You're condemning these sinners because you don't know that you yourself are sinners. They weren't marked by the compassion and love of God, and this meant that for all of their ceremony, they didn't actually know God. These Pharisees did not know him. And Jesus wants them to realize he's, he's calling out the, to, to them as, as, as a master physician, wielding the knife just to, to show them you have an internal disease of sin, too. You're sinners, too. He wants them to see themselves here. And then I think he also wants them to see that their accusation is wrong. He wants them to learn that Jesus is the one in this picture that's not sinning. Jesus is the one who understands what God wants. Jesus is the one who realizes that, that God delights in mercy more than ceremony. And so for Jesus to go into this house and make himself unclean, Ceremonially, ceremonially speaking, was, was, was not wrong. It was right because he was going to show mercy to sinners. And so he's saying, I'm not the one who's sinning here. I'm not the one who's unclean. I'm not the one with the problem. You are. God prioritizes mercy and love over ceremonial observance, and Jesus was the one without sin in this. And so again, it's really the same message. You're the sinner. I'm the healer. You're the one who needs my help. That's what Jesus is saying to them. That's what he wants them to see. I want to speak now to those of you who think that you are well this morning. You feel like you're living a life that God is pleased with. You feel like a righteous person. Do not believe the lie that the Pharisees believed, that ceremony will save you. Do not believe the lie that religion will make you right with God. Do not believe the lie that being a good person means you are going to heaven. All, all that is is like taking pain medicine to fight cancer, right? I mean, there's nothing in it. There's no help there. 
It's just temporarily masking the real disease that's inside of you. The call this morning is to recognize that you are sick too. Recognize that you are no better than the worst sinner that you can think of. You need mercy just as much as everybody else. And Jesus is the only one who can give you that merciful healing that you need. So as I said earlier, I say again, recognize that you need him and bring your sin-sick heart to Jesus this morning. Listen, he's, he's exposing everyone. Everyone's on the outside, yet he's inviting everyone to him. That's what he's doing. There's one more statement that we want to look at back in Matthew this morning. His third answer to the question, why do you tax collectors and sinners? Here's what he says. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is what we'd call a purpose statement, right? I came for this. Here is why I came. The words I came imply that he came from somewhere, right? He's not talking about Nazareth, though. Not talking about Bethlehem. Where did Jesus come from? Jesus came from heaven. Jesus came from the right hand of the Father. And he came to earth through his incarnation. The Son of God took on flesh and he came to earth. Why? Why did he come? He says, here's why. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, why didn't Jesus come to call the righteous? The simplest answer is that there are no righteous people to call. There's no righteous people for him to call. We are all unrighteous. There's only self-righteous people, but, but they need to realize they're sinners too. Jesus came to call sinners, which means that he came to call all people to himself. He came to call every single one of us to himself, whether it's a sinful tax collector or a self-righteous Pharisee. Jesus came to expose our sin sickness and invite us to be healed. This is why he came. But listen, Jesus wasn't just a prophet who issued this call with his words. Jesus called sinners, and he continues to call sinners today through his life and his death and his resurrection. This is, this is how Jesus calls us today, is not just his words. He's not just saying, there's a way to reconcile. He's saying, I'm the way. I am the way for someone that's outside to come inside. I'm the way for someone who's sick to be made well. And it's through my life and my death and my resurrection. Jesus' life calls sinners. Because Jesus' life exposes our sin. His life was totally sinless, and this sinlessness exposes everyone else. You know, if I'm comparing myself to another person, I might be able to say that I'm righteous and they're not. But, but before Jesus, we all realize he's righteous and we're not. He's sinless and we are sinners. He's okay and we are sick. When we look at our lives and life of Jesus' life, every one of us must confess we are sinners. His life calls sinners, and then his death calls sinners. This sinless one died a sinner's death on the cross, and he wasn't dying for his sins because he didn't have any sins to die for. He was dying for the sins of the world. He was bearing the just judgment of God in the place of sinners. He was paying our penalty that we deserve so that we don't have to pay it, so that we can be forgiven of our sins and cleansed from our sins. So when you think about Jesus dying on the cross, you see he's making a way. The sinless one is making a way for sinners to be forgiven, making a way for sinners to be healed. And then on the third day, after dying on the cross for sin, Jesus rose from the dead in power and glory, and now he lives forever and ever in an incorruptible resurrection life, and this calls sinners too. 
This resurrection says to sinners, this is eternal life. This is the call. You can have eternal life with me through the cross. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus call us to recognize that we're sinners, to believe that there is a substitute, and to come receive eternal life. That's the call of Jesus. Listen, according to this gospel, there are no outsiders and insiders. There's just outsiders. There's there's no righteous and unrighteous. There's just the unrighteous. There's no sick and well. There's just the sick. Again, to put it in modern terms, it's not those who are canceled and those who are righteous, but we're all, we all should be canceled, right? We're, we, we all have sinned. None of us meet God's actual standard of righteousness. But according to the gospel, Jesus came out to us. Jesus came out to those who were untouchable. He reached out to us to bring us back in. He didn't stand aloof. He doesn't stand aloof from us. Keep us at arm's length. Say, make yourselves better if you want anything to do with me. No, he comes to those who are sinners and he says, I can heal you through my death and my resurrection. All you need to do is come. All you need to do is come and be healed. That's all, that's all a sick person does, right? A sick person comes and says, I'm sick. You're the doctor, heal me. That, that's what Jesus calls you to do this morning. Recognize that you need him. Come to him with your heart. Cry out to him that you are sick on the inside of the sin. And trust in him that he is our healer. As we close this morning, would you just take a moment to do that? Wherever you are today, wherever you, however you were when you came in this morning, would you take a moment this morning to, to cry out to Jesus as your healer, to recognize that he has made a way. You don't need to get yourself better. You just come. You trust in what he has done for you.